0: and welcome to Learn On Podcast, the science show by kids for kids. I'm your host, Jansi, and today I have a very special guest. Would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Hi, Jansi. It's a pleasure to be here. My name is Rafael Rafael Grossman, and I am originally from Venezuela. I'm a surgeon, a trauma surgeon here in the local area. I did my surgery training in in Michigan after uh, doing my medical school in Venezuela, and uh, um, I've been in uh, Maine for about 18 years and uh, here in New Hampshire for about a couple of years. And uh, I am uh, a, a general surgeon who specializes in uh, trauma and emergency care, uh, but also has uh, a training on uh, minimally invasive surgery techniques uh, like laparoscopy and also robotic assisted surgery. In addition to that, I'm a, a very strong and passionate advocate on the use of technology, on the, a smart use of technology to improve how we do medicine, how we teach, how we learn, how we connect and communicate. Exponential technologies such as extended reality, you know, VR, AR, mixed reality, and also obviously artificial intelligence, especially generative AI. We're
0: so glad to have you, especially because of how many conversations people have been having recently about generative AI, you know, with the surge of chat GPT and other technologies. And so we are very excited to have this conversation today. And so first for our listeners, I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about what you do within your specialty and how developing medical technology is connected to your work.
1: Well, you see, surgery is a specialty that particularly makes use of an incredible amount of technologic tools. Over the last maybe three or four decades, especially, surgery has developed because of the help and the smart use of tools uh, that in the past were not available. Uh, I'm talking about, uh, for example, uh, endoscopy, you know, minimally invasive techniques, uh, robotic-assisted surgery, uh, things that are uh, really making uh, the surgery that we know today Possible surgeries that we have done for many decades now are done in a more efficient, uh, safer, and uh, perhaps, in most cases, even in a less costly way today because of the smart use of the technology. Uh, so I've always been a little bit of a geek, I think, uh, of sorts, and mm-hmm. I have developed that passion for for tapping into the uh, technology uh, in order to improve uh, how we do things, and but especially to overall increase and enhance or improve the experience of the of the provider right the, the surgeon in the particular case of surgery or or the healthcare provider in general but also the experience of the patient which i think is most important
0: right definitely and i'm really glad that you mentioned kind of all the different ways that medical technology can help with reducing risk of negative outcomes. Very exciting to see in future years how technology surrounding medicine, especially surgery, develops. And you know, we've already kind of seen that a lot with new techniques coming out and new research being done every day. And then I think you talked before about your theory of the pillars of healthcare. So can you explain to us more about what that is?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, the four pillars of, of healthcare really it's some a concept definition of, of what healthcare is about, right? And traditionally were three pillars, you know, cost, outcomes, and patient experience. But uh, in the last few years, we've added a, a fourth leg to that table, right? The surgeons or the providers experience, the healthcare providers experience, because the experience really needs to be optimal for both the caregiver and uh, the person who receives care along with the outcomes and the cost. In my website, which you probably have seen, it's it's rafaelgrossman.health. My website, I talk about two other legs of that table, the six pillars, because I like to always add technology and especially um, humanism to those four other pillars. So cost, outcomes, patient experience, provider experience, the smart use of technology, and that technology making healthcare almost paradoxically more uh, humane and rescuing medicine to what it should be, what it used to be, which was a a humanistic science, uh, almost more an art and sort of more humane specialty than what it is now for the last two or three decades because of the the wrong use of the technology. We have embraced uh, digital health, right? In the wrong manner for many years where we go to see a physician in the office and then all the patients is our backs because we are facing a computer, putting data in the computer. And that's not bad, you know, putting data in the computer because it helps us do better, more scientific, objective documentation and billing and whatnot. But at the same time, we are running away from what medicine should be, which is a face to face, you know, touch, human, caring, empathetic, compassionate specialty.
0: Definitely. I think this is a great point that you bring up about humanism, and especially because a theme that I've noticed in a lot of conversations about advancing medical technology is the worry that it will detract from the connection between doctor and patient. And so in kind of like ethical debates, conversations about this, you know, people have argued that it won't necessarily take away from that. But I think this is one of the first times that I've heard about technology actually being able to enhance that. So I kind of want to explore that a little bit further because I'm very intrigued. So are there maybe any drawbacks of using advanced technology in a medical context? Can we potentially take it too far? And how can this technology actually help us to strengthen these doctor-patient connections?
1: Yes. You know, like with anything we do, there's always a positive and a negative, a pro and a con. For example, digital health. You know, people initially was resistant and then was fascinated by not having to write everything, but just put everything in the computer, not having to go through hundreds and hundreds of pages of paper to find something, but just look it up in the computer very quickly. If you were doing research to have the data right in front of you and have an algorithm, you know, an Excel sheet or something, just give you the results pretty quickly, right? But then you sort of forget about the... The main objective of what we do, the main goal, the the beacon of what we should focus on in medicine is the human, the person in front of us. So that's a drawback, forgetting about the humane practice and the human in front of us. Obviously cost, you know, the excessive use of of, of technology when it's probably not necessary. The substitution of the traditional ways for other more advanced, costly and sometimes inefficient ways of doing things, abusing the power that technology gives us. Uh, uh, all those are, I are, 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 are think, the drawbacks that, that at the end reflect on uh, uh, making us uh, forget about the, the human uh, in front of us, the patient, and also training a generation of uh, providers, not just physicians, but nurses, technicians, and whatnot that are not used to dealing with Humans anymore. They're just used to dealing with technology, and they they forget about it. So I think it's really really important that that we sort of change the paradigm that we have created over the last few decades, where technology is just a a a complement to what we traditionally do, and there are many ways of. Of doing medicine very well without technology, and most importantly, without technology. And technology is just an asset, another tool. Uh, we tend to abuse technology. That's a, a drawback. We tend to overuse technology. If you look at the unacceptable and almost shameful cost of healthcare expenses over in a year, you know the statistics are probably about four years old. But one year of healthcare expenses in the U.S. is supposed to cost uh, close to 3.3 trillion dollars. So imagine the Cost of that. That's all healthcare related expenses. Whatever the numbers are, you know, it's very, very high and it's the highest in the world. And we don't have certainly the best healthcare in the world in the US, despite that expense. And the other thing is that the amount of misdiagnosis, the amount of errors, deaths, preventable error, the number is also hard to calculate, but there are reports of eight to 900,000 people die or get misdiagnosed every year in the United States in an inappropriate way, right? They, they, imagine 100,000 dying from preventable errors, for example, or being misdiagnosed, because we we focus on on sometimes not the human, not the traditional art of medicine, but we focus on technology and order every single test for every single symptom. And that's not really the the way to go about things, I think. So those are drawbacks that are obvious in my mind. But also I want to touch on the fact that technology obviously is not equitable distributed, right? So uh, people talk about the digital divide and how some people have and some people don't have, and not just uh, in the world, obviously, but within the United States, you know, you have some people that have no access to technologies to, for example, hospitals that have no access to certain technologies, and hence the patients in that area will not have access to the technology and will have to go the route of a more expensive more painful or less accurate ways of doing things is suffering the consequences of that from higher cost, possibly to higher discomfort to a worse experience to at the end, worse outcome because the technologies are not available. If you talk about telemedicine and, you know, if you don't have internet at home, then how can you do telehealth visit, for example? All the things, the lack of equality or equity in the access to technology in medicine is a big drawback, a big problem that we need to fix.
0: Yeah, I think you dug into some really, really important topics that We should definitely be considering more as we continue to develop medical technology. So for example, this idea of the digital divide is certainly something that needs to be explored more because we often talk about medical technology in the context of improving accessibility, and it certainly does. It gives us the ability, just like telemedicine itself, the ability to reach so many more patients but at the same time that just worsens the divide for people who don't have access to those resources in the first place and i really also enjoyed hearing you talk about medicine as thinking about it as sort of an art form as well and a way of connecting people rather than just focusing on pure science and the diagnosis so i think that as you stated technology definitely has so much more that we can capitalize on to improve our healthcare system but That kind of begins with focusing on the human aspect first. So yeah, a lot of great content that we covered. And then I also want to backtrack a little bit and talk more specifically about you. So you have performed the first ever documented Google Glass surgery. Can you tell us more about what that experience was like?
1: Sure. Yeah, I'd be glad to. So obviously this is a podcast with audio, so I can't really show all the tools that I have here in front of me, but Google Glass, I think it was a very revolutionary tool in its time, right? It's about 10 years ago when he came out and I had the chance to be in Silicon Valley in a special training and I met the inventor Google Glass. And so basically a little frame that goes right on the lower part of your forehead that has a, almost like a rear view mirror, a little cube of glass right in front of your right eye in the upper corner. And when you're driving, when you want and see what's behind you, you look at the rear view mirror. Well, Google Glass is the same. You have clear view, but at the same time, you have this little glass cube that it's a digital screen, a screen that projects at uh, the equivalent of, of you watching a, a 27 inch TV six to eight feet away. And not only that, but it has a camera that can take pictures and video and also can live stream a, a situation and also connects to the internet projecting on that screen in a sort of an augmented reality manner, whatever content uh, you need, like a computer screen. So when I saw that device, I thought, well, this would be a great tool to improve, to enhance the experience of my students learning. When I'm doing surgery, sometimes, you know, the surgical field is small. Most of the times it is, especially these days. And the students try to learn by watching. And, uh, you know, the residents and younger surgeons even try to learn by watching. And, you know, it's hard to watch sometimes. You watch sometimes from a different perspective, from the other side of the room, or you watch from a distance, or you try to be behind the surgeon's back, trying to look at what he's looking at and what he's doing or what she's doing. And Google Glass allowed me to basically stream my perspective live to a group of students learning what I was doing. And, you know, they were sitting in another room and we were just streaming live the content from my perspective. It was not a head-mounted camera. It was not a camera on the ceiling with a different perspective. It was exactly what I was seeing. So in a way, they were almost like seeing through my eyes and asking questions, answering questions, learning in a more optimal way because of the smart use of technology. And that obviously it was a big step by it as a very simple way to use the device as it came out of the box. But also when I wrote a post about that, a friend of mine wrote a a Forbes post, uh, it went viral. And the next day I'm getting calls from all over the world wanting to know how we did that. And Google Glass, uh, everyone was talking about Google Glass in those days. And so that in a way catapulted my career as a digital health sort of technology innovator and an advocate and maybe influencer going all over the world, preaching and advocating for the power of the smart use of technologies like that this one, and then, you know, later on, uh, artificial intelligence, extended realities, like I said before, VR, mixed reality, and many other things, including, you know, mobile health and wearables. So there's no limit, really. But that experience with Google Glass to me, is set the precedent for the later use, and not what we're seeing today, where head-mounted displays, extended reality displays are becoming more and more common in education, in diagnostic, and even therapeutics, even within the OR. So some people talk about it having failed, but it hadn't failed. It really was the first step. It was almost like the Model T, right, of cars. You know, it wasn't a failure. It was just the first step. And it really set up precedent to spark the curiosity and thinking differently in a generation of people that have created what we see today with devices like HoloLens or Magic Leap or View6, Blade or whatnot.
0: Yeah, that is so interesting to think about. I remember people were talking so much about Google Glass when like, you know, it was 10 years ago, so I was really young, but I remember there being a lot of talk and a lot of excitement around it, and it's so interesting to hear your account of that, and I think this is also something that I was going to ask after as well, but it also kind of answers the question about how the development of digital resources enhances medical education as well, and we're not just improving healthcare right now but we're also able to train future generations better and you mentioned earlier as well not just doctors you know but other healthcare workers like nurses for example so that's very interesting to think about and you know I've been reading recently about even more advanced surgical techniques with development of augmented reality virtual reality and being able to teach and practice as well so it would have been so cool to watch
1: good good I'm glad
0: yeah And I'm also just curious in learning more about how your experience as a surgeon affects your insights as a healthcare futurist, because there's definitely so many innovative minds that are thinking creatively about this space as we advance medical technology. But how does your experience being a doctor and practicing right now affect the way that you kind of think about those things?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think that one of my most important assets or advantages, you know, humbly speaking, is that I am a practicing surgeon, right? I I am not someone who was a surgeon or was a physician, graduated and never practiced, stopped practicing some time ago to be able to run around the world talking about, you know, medicine and how to solve the problems. I am a practicing physician. So you see me in my scrubs right now because I'm post-call. I was up all night, 14 hours doing trauma and emergency surgery call. And that is really an important point, I think. Because uh, yes, I mean, there is room for all kinds of different backgrounds and experiences. But in my particular case, I think that what helps me the most, innovating and thinking about potential solutions and trying to use my geeky mind and technology-oriented mind to how to solve a problem and how to um, use a device that was probably created for fun and for entertainment, how to use that device to maybe help us connect and communicate better or help us teach or learn better, is the fact that I am a practicing physician. So I am on the trenches like they say, in the front lines these days with the pandemic. You know, you are there and you live all the problems all the frustrations and all the negativity about healthcare. And you suffer in a way with a very clear intent of the word, suffering the consequences of how poorly developed and how far from ideal our healthcare is. And having that experience, I think that really not just motivates me, but also gives me a lot of fertile ground to improve, to innovate. You know, when I give talks and every month or so, I go to a a different place, different state, different country to talk about, you know, technology in in healthcare. And I usually bring devices and give workshops and show live demonstrations of devices to spark curiosity and drive on, on, on people in healthcare using these technologies. When I go around, I go to all sorts of countries. You know, I can be in the Emirates, in Dubai, and I can be in a country of very low socioeconomic indexes, right? And they many times ask me, how about this technology here, how, how can we have these technologies, or how can we do what you guys do there? When when we don't have all this, the, well, I always say, you know, you have the the less advanced, the less developed country from the socioeconomic point of view, the more opportunity you have because you have more problems, you have fertile ground to innovate, you have a lot of things to solve. In countries like ours, for example, in societies like ours then a a lot of the problems are solved in a way or partially solved, but, you know, you have to dig deeper, right? But if you go to a country that has no continuous power grid or electricity or water or whatnot, or no healthcare or or no roads, or you have all these other issues that you need to really try to think about how to solve. So there are many more problems that gives you much more material in order to to make an impact and make a change. So that's the reason I respond. So I think that being a surgeon, you know, is a little bit, like that, you know, gives me the the, the daily facing the nightmare of sometimes practice and, and how do I make this better by the smart use of tech?
0: Yeah, I really loved your wording of the term fertile ground, and that definitely makes a lot of sense. That when you're able to experience the drawbacks of our current healthcare system firsthand, it gives you so much more opportunity to innovate, and especially because you know, from my perspective. I'm really interested in medicine, but of course, I don't have your experience. And so it's really easy to look at all of the advancements we've made over the past few decades and be like, wow, you know, we have it all solved. We have so much more advancement, especially in comparison to, you know, other countries, other healthcare systems. But at the same time, there are still so many issues that we need to address. And so having that fresh mindset definitely would be able to give you a lot of insight with that. And so I think that's a perfect transition into my last question for you, which is, is there anything specific that you would like to see, whether it's in the near or far off future, as technology for medicine continues developing? <clears throat>
1: Sure. Uh, I, I think obviously every day you see new things that are appearing and, and people talking about. Plus, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? There's a lot of other technologies that are there that have been worked on that no one knows about. For example, right? the like generative AI, we all talk about. A generative AI, you know, large language models, and that, that they came out, you know, publicly in, in November, but they've been working on that for many years, right? I would have been talking about AI for, for decades, right? And a, a way, you know, the algorithms run the world. I don't know if you ever heard of, there's something called Amara Law. Amara is A-M-A-R-A, Amara Law, and the name after a person, an engineer, I believe. Amara's Law says that advanced technologies tend to be uh, all hyped up. It tend to be talked a lot about in the short term. For example, AI, right? For example, the example of GPS. Back in the 70s, everyone was talking GPS. And then in the long term, we kind of forget about those technologies, despite the fact that those technologies run the world in the background. That's what Amara's Law says, right? And the same thing happening with, with VR and standard reality in general with AI today, where everyone is talking about AI and whatnot. And then in the very mid-distant term, these technologies are going to run everything we do and we're not going to even think or talk about them, right? So uh, there's a lot of hype in the initial phases and not too much so uh, in the later phases. But I am very excited, obviously, about generative AI. And I think that we have come to a point where the development of AI in the sense of, uh, if you're familiar with what we call advanced general intelligence right the intelligence that we the artificial intelligence that we deal with is narrow intelligence you know algorithms that solve very little problems or focused ai Or general ai is something that is to the level of the human mind in a way but generative ai is a conversational ai it produces data that does not exist based on a prompt and data that you input so all of that gives us a level of digital assistance a guidance that we never had before, before you had to Google something or you had to Bing something or you have to ask Siri or Alexa or things like that, you know, and the answers were, were very itinerial, always you know, picking and tabulating and sorting things. But now this uh, generative AI can create things, can create new content for you uh, in a way that humans do. And obviously it's not perfect because humans are not perfect either. So it's very human-like already and it's been developing very, very quickly, as you can see. In, a, in an exponential manner, really. And so I'm very excited about the power of those technologies in any endeavor of human. Uh... Of human behavior, but especially in healthcare, to be able to help us and decompress our load of burdens that are objective and analytic, and uh, you know us remembering and sorting things that now we not need to do that so much because we can very easily prompt a, a specific prompt and get in seconds a very very nice almost perfect result in regards to to whatever you know create guidelines for the treatment of this or that. Obviously, it's just a a framework, Uh, the expert needs to assist the agent AI to then make it better. You know, the best result is the human plus the AI. That is unbeatable, right? So I'm very excited about that in medicine from not what we've been doing for years now, you know, reading images and helping radiologists and helping or helping pathologists look at images and detecting abnormalities and sorting out what's abnormal and what's normal, helping make a diagnosis, but going much, much beyond that, you know, where you can really have almost a super smart quote-unquote digital assistant uh, helping you go through your your problem list much faster uh, in a much more human-like way. And if you integrate that into technologies like robotic-assisted technology, extended reality where you can have basically the sense of touch, uh, as you do have the sense of vision and the sense of audio, uh, you can also have senses like touch, like haptics. And if you integrate uh, you know, monitoring of of human perception and changes in the physiology of the human, you can have AI algorithms help optimize all the systems in a way that we have only seen in science fiction movies. So that is what the future is going to be very, very soon, I think. And that's what excites me the most.
0: Definitely. It was so great to hear your perspective. And I think the concept of Amara's Law is something that I've been aware of and kind of discussed before, but it's it's great to hear it in official terms. And I think that is so true with so many past technologies, like you gave GPS as an example, even brought up virtual assistants like Siri or Alexa. They were, there was so much rage about them in like the mid 2010s. Again, I remember being elementary and middle school and so many people were talking about it. And of course, it's still very exciting, very helpful technology, but now it's taken for granted and we rarely even think about it anymore. And I definitely see the same thing happening with artificial intelligence, because I've been interested in it for a really long time, even before the whole boom of chat GPT. I actually remember playing around with the previous model, GPT-3, which I think was released in like 2020, 2021. And I've done some smaller scale research projects looking at how artificial intelligence can help in medicine before we started having such large scale talks about it. And so, of course, it's great to be really excited about it in the short term. But as you said, it's really important to consider the long term, and we still have so much more to improve and develop, even though we've made really big steps recently. So yeah, it was fantastic hearing your perspective as a practicing surgeon about all of this. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today.
1: My pleasure. It's an honor to be here with you and uh, always available to, to, to help and continue the conversation in any way
0: definitely. And also uh, your website will be down below as well as your socials for our listeners that want to explore and learn more. I know I definitely had a great time browsing through and learning more. So all of that will be available for our listeners. And thank you so much once again for joining us.